Good morning, and it's really good to see you all, and thank you to the men who filled in in my absence. Appreciate Doug and Gary doing a great job and keeping the pulpit soundly filled. Uh, Some good news and bad news for you this morning. Uh, The bad news is I have forgot my watch. My Apple Watch is at home charging on the station. The good news is it wouldn't have mattered anyway, so you all know that. A question for you this morning, uh, a little bit of a poll, if you will, I want to talk to you about Christmas gifts. Um, If you currently have all of your Christmas shopping done for Christmas 2020, it's shopped, it's wrapped, it's under the tree, it's ready to go. Everything is done. All you are waiting for is that glorious morning uh, when people can open your gifts and probably return them. But uh, if you have all of your shopping done, raise your hand. It's going to take a very scientific poll. Okay? These people are a different breed of people. Okay? (laughs) All right. We got about four or five of you at, uh, at least here on site. Don't know how many of you at home. Uh, how many of you are sort of in the process? Like you've got some done, there's a few gifts under, but you have some left to go. How many of you are in the process? Work in progress. Okay, that's a, a good share of you. How many of you are praying for the imminent return of Jesus before December 25th? All right, that's some honest people. <laughs> Gift shopping is one of those weird traditions, and it's a little bit challenging in our world because we are so blessed. Really, if we think about it, there is nothing that you and I living in this country need at all. We have everything we need. So what do you get for the person or people who have everything, right? It's, you know, some people do homemade gifts, and that's, that's really neat. You know, kind of put your heart and your hands into something. That's really special and meaningful. Uh, Some people just ask, hey, give me the list. Send me your Amazon list. I want to ask you to think about what is it that you would get for a king. As we often do around December, we focus a little bit on the story of the incarnation. The story of Jesus, the word, as John says, becoming flesh. And there's different focuses and different series, but the, 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 the real interesting part about this series is that we're focusing on not really the birth moment, because we don't know exactly when that happened. Uh, you know, the Bible never says Jesus was b- b- before, born on December 25th or in December. I suppose there's a 1 in 365 chance that he was. But the Bible really doesn't say And so some churches of Christ take this approach that, well, you know, the Bible doesn't say, so we're not going to say anything. And to me, that's just a missed opportunity. When you have the world focusing on sort of the worldly elements of the season and Christmas music playing over the radio and Christmas lights, maybe there's an opportunity to redeem that and point people back to Scripture. So unapologetically, we'll always kind of look around this season about the story of the Word becoming flesh. This particular series, we're focusing on 
the story, not really of when the moment when Jesus came into the world, but a little bit after, in fact. Uh, Matthew and Luke both describe this moment of all moments, the centerpiece of history. That everything that the Bible was pointing towards is pointing to this moment when Jesus would make his appearance on the scene. The first time when God came this close, eyeball to eyeball, flesh to flesh, and came near. In fact, the scripture says that they were to call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So if you care to follow along in your Bibles, I hope that you do, turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, we're going to be looking at the story of the wise men coming to see Jesus. Now, uh, we're going to read through this, and there will be some things that you'll notice. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12. And if you're watching at home, I hope that you have a Bible that you're following along in. That's always good to do. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now... After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, the first thing that you notice here is that we are not in the moment when Jesus was born. This is not in the, in this, with the animals, in the manger. This, as Matthew clearly says, this is after Jesus was born. How long after? Well, the scripture doesn't exactly say. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, as Scripture said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Now, why they would say that is because Bethlehem was a very small, insignificant town, basically a farming community. It, it, was, a, it was a nothing. Nobody significant came from there. It was almost an oversight geographically. But you're by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may go, may, may come and worship him. Jesus was a highly sought after child by both the Magi and by King Herod and by other people. They wanted to know if the promised child was here, where was he? And more importantly, who was he? After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the star with it over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child. It doesn't say the baby. Okay, so, so Jesus is somewhat older here. Again, we don't know how much older, but they saw the child. The word there meaning is different from a baby. Uh, with Mary, his mother, they fell down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, 
frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country to find another way. All right, so a little bit of insight into this story. The Magi, as we're told, were uh, from the east. They were Gentiles. Possibly some ascertained that they were from Persia. Uh, We're studying the stars for meaning and uh, 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 understanding was very common. That was common in their religion, not in Judaism, of course, but they saw apparently one star that was spectacular. It was different from every other star in the sky. Something significant had happened. They knew this. And we assume that there were three magi. The Bible never says that either. And we sing the song, or you've heard it sung, We Three Kings, and, and, and it really doesn't say that there were three. We assume there were three because there are three gifts that are named. But it could have been 13, it could have been 33, it could have been 300. We really don't know. So they journeyed west with their gifts, and, and as was common in that culture, gift-giving was a, a practice among Foreign visiting dignitaries. Uh, it's an ancient practice, the, the, the practice of gift giving. Uh, the story of Queen Sheba coming to visit the King, King Solomon. When she did that, she brought caravans, the scripture says, of gifts. Yeah, that, that was practice diplomacy. The story of Jacob returning to Esau. When he, when he returned and he thought his brother would be so angry and furious with him, he brought just camel after camel loaded with gifts for his brother, it, it, was, it was an ancient practice, it was good diplomacy, and it's sort of just good manners. This practice, you know, still occurs today uh, with, with, uh, in diplomacy and, and, and governments and foreign visiting officials. I actually did probably more research than I should have on this, but, uh, you know, when, when uh, the ambassador from another country comes to the United States or the United States ambassador goes to another country, it's common practice to bring a gift. And there's different kinds of gifts. There's been clothing, there's been uh, money, there's been uh, all sorts of things reflecting the culture, uh, necklaces and, and desks. And uh, one was kind of odd to me, it was like a, a, a boxed set of DVDs. It was kind of an unusual gift. But there's, there's this whole government office devoted to giving the right gift for the situation. So, it's an ancient practice, but it continues today. And this is what the Magi probably were doing, is to this newborn king, they're going to bring a gift, a gift of goodwill to, to ha- have good relations between their countries and the, the kingdom of this new king. Maybe you and I have partaken in this. Have you ever brought a gift when someone comes into a new home or as the case with Briley and Riley, celebrate a, a new marriage? Or, or someone has a new baby? Okay, this is, this is kind of continuing that practice. Now, it's not diplomacy in the official sense, but it's just a gesture of goodwill. It's a gesture of good manners, okay? So this is what probably the Magi were doing. And upon their arrival into Bethlehem, you need to think about how they were dressed, and how they traveled, and they're loaded with goods. And these were clearly, these, these people didn't fit in. And so you can just hear the whispers in the marketplace as they, as they travel along the streets. Who are those people? Where are they from? 
And they're just kind of this, who are these guys and what are they doing here? And the good news is they're not secretive about it. Verse 11, where is the, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star. We've come to worship him. That has to be interesting. And I think this is sort of a foreshadowing of the gospel. Because you have Gentiles as messengers announcing to the Jews that their king has been born. And they have come to not just give gifts, to worship him. That's fascinating to me. Now, whether they fully understood what kind of king had been born, maybe they just thought Jesus was a king of this world, uh, like other kings in this world. Or maybe, as the scripture says, because they had come to worship him, they knew he was a different kind of king. We really don't know their thinking, but we do know that King Herod was threatened by word of a new king. That a new king had come, and so his plan, of course, was to do away with the, this new king. And so he says, well, when you figure out where he is, let me know, because I want to go and send him a message. The weary travels, travelers uh, head on toward Bethlehem. Uh, finally, the star stops over probably a very modest home inside this little farming town of Bethlehem. And as they knock on the door and the door opens, inside is a carpenter, a very young mother, by some accounts possibly a teenager, and the promised king. Well, now, he probably wasn't baby Jesus at that point, but... But perhaps he was toddling Jesus, you know. He was, he was maybe walking. Perhaps he was saying his first words. What do you think his first words were? Abba, Abba, Abba. Don't know. There's baby infant Jesus, child Jesus, toddling around the home. Um, somewhat older than babe, but not much more than that. And the Magi... Bow low. They present their gifts. They prostrate themselves in complete and total adoration. And they present their gifts. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, I just got to say at the outset, these are very unusual gifts for a child. I don't think I've ever, ever seen these kind of gifts brought to a baby shower. Okay? What was the purpose in bringing... My, my, my bit of curiosity rouses up in my mind. What was the thinking behind these gifts? I think their offering tells us something that they understood. And so, we're gonna, actually going to do a, a little bit of a deeper dive on these three gifts... Because I think there's a meaning and a message for all of us. Uh, a lesson for us in these simple gifts that they offered. They tell us not only how they viewed Jesus, but also how we should view Jesus. How we should live our lives in view of this child, this incarnate word named Jesus. The first gift uh, that we know, of course, is the gift of 
gold. Um, actually, thought I would do a little visual here. Annie <laughs> beat me to the punch and, and put some gold decorations in the foliage there. Um, gold, of course, is a precious, precious metal. Anybody know what the value of gold is currently? I'm not sure if you're supposed to speak. It's just my job, right? The value is $1,800 an ounce. Before you make a mad rush to the stage, this is pyrite, fool's gold. I couldn't, couldn't get this much gold. Elders would probably have a bit of a consternation of spending $10,000 for a visual on a sermon. But, but I wanted you to imagine this gift of gold, this precious metal, this commodity, uh, the, the ancient treasure it's, it's mentioned all throughout the Bible of gold. It's first mentioned in Genesis chapter 2, the, the land of Havilah. And the scripture says the land of the gold of that land is good there. I always wonder what the distinction was between good gold and bad gold, but you know, I'll take either one. It's a highly valuable commodity in their world and in ours. Everyone from Olympic athletes... To commodity traders know the value of this sparkly rock, this metal. Abraham had a plethora of gold, we're told. Solomon's royal palace was full of gold in every part of it. His home and the temple that he planned to build. Uh, you, you, you look at the description of the places of worship. From the tabernacle uh, to both temples, the temple of Solomon and Herod, uh, they were full of gold. First Chronicles chapter 29 says that over 8,000 talents of gold were collected for Solomon's temple. And you think, well, that's very interesting, but how much is a talent? Well, to give you some perspective, a single talent of gold would be worth about $2 million today. So if you do a little more math, it tells us that Solomon's temple contained the equivalent of $16 billion in gold. For everything. I mean, every part of it, from the Holy of Holies to the walls, the Ark of the Covenant, the altar, the floors, uh, even the garments for the priests had some gold on them. One could not enter worship there at the temple and miss this unmistakable message that you were entering the glory of the king. You were entering a throne, a throne room of royalty. You were there to worship the king of kings. The Bible is clear that Jesus is king like no other. Let's go back to the scripture and look at some scriptures that remind us of this. Whether the Magi's understood it or not, uh, the Jews certainly did. And early Christians absolutely did. Turn to Matthew chapter 21. 
as Jesus enters Jerusalem, the people bow down before him. And what Matthew describes as the triumphal entry. And Matthew uh, quotes scripture here. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. And then he says something unusual, something very unusual for kings to come to you humble and mounted on a donkey. The scripture was clear that this was the sign of the king, but it was a king unlike any other king. If you're caring to follow along, John chapter 19 continues this uh, idea. Uh, As Jesus is being crucified, there is this moment, and it follows a conversation, which we'll come back to in just a, a moment or two. But John chapter 19, verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it at the top of the put it on the cross, and it read, "Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews." Now, we know that the Jews argued with this. They, they said, don't put that he's the king, put that he claimed to be the king. Of course, Pilate responded to that, I've written what I've written. And Pilate knew he had some authority too. It's interesting to me that this inscription follows a conversation that he had with Jesus himself. I wonder if Pilate didn't know who Jesus was. And let's go to Hebrews for one more scriptural point about Jesus' kingship. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. It's hard for us to understand in our world, and certainly in the United States, where we change leaders every two to four years. Having a king that was there for a lifetime was much more what they understood. Having a king that was king forever and ever was a new and better kind of king than they had ever known. Their offering reminds us that Jesus is king. Their offering of gold points to Jesus' kingship and to his royalty. Now, let's go back to John chapter 18. I do want to go back into this conversation, very interesting, that Jesus had with Pilate. John chapter 18, verse 33, is where this conversation begins. So Pilate, entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not have delivered over, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Now Jesus says something very important there, and, and if you're paying attention, 
may you not miss it. There, there is some teaching within some churches that Jesus' kingdom is a worldly kingdom. That Jesus is king, and someday he's going to reign on earth for a thousand years in an earthly kingdom. And Jesus says, point blank, that's untrue. My kingdom is not of this world, he says, and my kingdom is not from this world, he says. Jesus is saying he's a different kind of king. He's answering Pilate's question. Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you, and I hope you're, I hope you're right there, because this is important. This is where it ties back into the Magi's offering. Jesus answered, verse 37, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is, on the, who is of the truth listens to my voice. Isn't that interesting? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not from this world. But look what he says. I have come into the world. Pilate said to him, the question of of Pilate is the question of our generation. What is truth? And Jesus, of course, had already answered. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told him. This is Pilate now. He says, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? So Pilate had, Pilate had in some way begun to believe what Jesus said about himself. The king of of the Jews. And of course they cry out, not this man, but Barabbas. Not, now Barabbas was a robber and they, they wanted a robber instead of a king. And God wasn't offended by that. It wasn't the first time that they had rejected him as king. May then, it's all very interesting, but, but what does it mean for us? May, may we, like the Magi, offer Jesus the king honor. You've heard me mention my grandmother and her impact on my life and my faith life. And in, as far as one can ascertain the security and the assurity of one's eternity in heaven, I believe with all my heart that my grandmother is there. While she was here in this world, there was a phrase that my grandmother loved to use, and maybe yours too, and it was this. That little man upstairs. I love my grandmother, but that is theologically as far from correct as can be. The scripture is clear. Jesus is king. Not a king of this world. Not a king like other kings. But a king far different. If you'd like some bonus points, turn to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says... To the king of the ages, immortal, see, no other king is immortal, invisible, see, no other king is invisible, 
the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. No other king like that. 1 Timothy chapter 6, he goes on writing to Timothy. He says, God, the blessed and only ruler, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and glory and might forever. Amen. Now, you either believe that or you don't, but someday you will. There will be no option. Matthew chapter 2. Think about it again. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and they worshipped him. Why did they worship him? Because they knew he was king. Unlike any other king that they had ever visited before. And they presented him with gifts. The first gift is the gift of gold. The gift, the only gift you give a king. But of course, Jesus being a king, like, unlike any other king, didn't need their gold. Because Jesus is king... He doesn't ask us to bring to him gold or silver or monetary gifts. What he asks for us is something of far greater worth. If you want to know what it is, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, this is verse 10, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. No, He is not little man upstairs. He is King Almighty, eternal, immortal, Invisible, and to him and him alone belong glory and praise and adoration forever and ever. And may we bend our knees. More importantly, may we bend our hearts. And may we confess with our mouths that we believe Jesus is King. He alone is a king unlike any other. May we give him like the Magi did our worship, our adoration, our praise. Because someday we're going to do that forever and ever and ever. There is just one reason that a king like Jesus would lay down his kingship. Do you want to know what that reason is? He laid down his kingship for you and for me. Colossians 1 says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, 
For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is king, and he laid down his kingdom for you and I. The question is, will you bend your knee, and will you bend your heart, and will you confess with your mouth that you believe Jesus is king? If you haven't done that this morning, there's a wonderful opportunity to do that. We'll have some shepherds waiting at the back. And you can bend your heart and your life and your will to the king of the ages. Or you can stand, as the famous song goes, and say, I I'm not, I bend my knee and my heart and my life to no one. I did it my way. But someday in eternity, your knee will bow. Today it's an option, then it won't be. I beg of you, I plead with you, if you have not bent your heart and your life to King Jesus, I invite you to do that this morning. There's no better time. I don't know what you you might be possibly waiting for. If you're watching online, if you haven't done that, now some people say, say a prayer, some people say invite Jesus into your heart, do what Scripture says to do. Steve talked about it in Romans chapter 6 this morning. Be buried with him in baptism. Confess your belief that he is Lord and live in obedience to the king. This morning, if you have that need or any other spiritual need, I want you to head to the back to meet with one of our shepherds and they'll help you in the very best way possible. Whatever your need might be, let's, let's bring that now as together we stand and we sing.